Hi. Hi, welcome back. Yes. Welcome to Modern Medieval, the podcast. I'm Megan. And I'm Ello. Hey, did you notice that this is the first time in a while that we've managed to do that? (laughs) Yeah, we just jumped right into it so that we don't forget 10 minutes in. So this week we are excited because we decided to do Coco, which we mentioned thinking about doing for last week and then changed our mind. And election. Yeah, with the election. And so we did the Ruthless Rulers, which so I was inspired last week after our talk to watch Gladiator. Oh you know Russell Crowe and Joaquin Phoenix. I hadn't watched it in a very, very long time. It's still such a great film. How last week I briefly mentioned Commodus, who is Joaquin Phoenix's character in the film. Mm-hmm. And honestly, he should have been on our list. Commodus was a lot. He thought that he was the incarnation of Hercules. Really? So he had lots of statues uh, of him as Hercules. He like changed the currency to have images of his face on it, like temples with his statue, just all kinds of stuff. And then he actually was like a gladiator emperor. So he would go into the gladiator ring and either wound the the soldiers before he fought them. So a la the film gladiator. Or they just wouldn't fight him intensely so that he always won. And I was just like, man, this feels so Trumpian. I I mean, also, it's kind of like trying to insert yourself into history in a way that is much, makes you look much better than you actually are. Yeah. I mean, his legacy now is like very megalomaniacal, Mm. megalomaniacal. And um, he was ultimately assassinated by, I don't remember, was he, I think he was like stabbed in the baths or something like that. So yeah. And then everything after he died, like reverted back to how it was before though he's considered the last emperor of like the golden era i think it's like the pax romana if i recall correctly of roman empire it started to kind of take a downturn after him because he like bankrupted the roman empire and stuff because it was like ten thousand dollars at all yeah so i just i thought i'd briefly mention that it's a great film if you haven't seen it it's Mm -hmm. long it's two and a half hours but it is really great has marcus aurelius in it who's played by the same richard harris who was dumbledore in the first two harry potter films which watching it you know it's like crazy you know the associations because his voice is that kind of wispy soft old man and he started talking i was like dumbledore (laughs) it's always so fascinating when you have the people from like harry potter actually play themselves or like play other things and you're like oh my god you have an actual career that isn't what I associate you with yeah it's always just funny the associations I mean I've seen Alan Rickman he was a phenomenal actor RIP and it was funny because I knew him initially in um Galaxy Quest Mm. you know he was one of the aliens and then Harry Potter and and love actually so it's like these different associations that are radically different but yeah, yeah. anyways i just thought like oh commodus should be mentioned as you know a postscript to last yeah. week i think you're right so like we said we're doing coco this week but before we jump into coco and it's surprising medieval links <laughs> um we wanted to briefly discuss the mary wollstonecraft statue that was recently revealed or unveiled in Stoke Newington in London. 
because it does actually kind of have a hinge connection to Coco. Indeed, indeed. So for those of you who haven't, you know, read the news and seen that this statue was unveiled, um, first of all, this is the very first statue to ever be like dedicated to or for Mary Wollstonecraft, who Which wrote stuff. Crazy. It's fucking bonkers. I'm. Sh- I was shocked when I like read yeah, that. I actually didn't. Th- I didn't think that that was the first one for some reason. But then it just I don't know, yeah. seems counterintuitive in a way that it's the first one. Yeah. So for those of you who need a little, you know, brief history zinger recollection. Mary Wollstonecraft wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. This was written in 1792 and is like a proto-feminist dogma. It's in response to the rights of man, which who who wrote that? Do you recall? No, I don't. Um, anyways, she this is like a huge, huge deal in regards to the beginning yeah. of like women equality, women's rights. She married William Godwin, and then they gave birth, or not they gave birth, she gave birth to Mary Shelley, yeah, who wrote Frankenstein. So those are kind of like her legacy things. But I mean, Mary Wollstonecraft did a lot. Yeah, the statue was unveiled in the neighborhood she used to live in, in London. And the statue is by the British sculptor uh, Maggie Hambling, Hambling, Ma- Magi Hambling. How do you pronounce it? It's M-A- Maggie as well, but I'm not sure whether that's wrong. Yeah, so it's M-A-G-G-I. And then her last name is H-A-M-B-L-I-N-G. I think but that I, would be Hambling, right? Yeah, I think. Is she German, though? It's one of those names where we'll just call her Maggie Hambling. But if that's wrong, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> but so she unveiled this statue. And it is silvered bronze. That is this. It almost looks like a plume of smoke. Or like metamorph, like frozen magma, you know, yeah. cold magma. That out of the top is a female figure. She almost, <laughs> speaking of Harry Potter, it makes me think of the scene in the Goblet of Fire when Harry ejects himself out of the uh, Black Lake in the second context. You know, and it has like the shot of his body and he's kind of like aquamanning it. <laughs> I, in the picture. It's true now and I can visualize it. That's just like how I I see it. But it's a nude woman and she's quite small, like coming out of this turbulence. And at the unveiling, instantly backlash, confrontation, criticism. So Ello, what are you like what are your thoughts on the the statue? Um, either your initial reaction and after there's lots of articles that were written on this, like instantly. So I don't know. I kind of think I'm sorry, I'm trying to get around to what I'm thinking. Basically, I kind of think that the fact that she was naked Mm -hmm. uh, is to some extent kind of disrespectful because obviously she did so much to try and, you know, counter this kind of vision of women as objects. Mm -hmm. But then equally, we have gotten to a point in history where, like, the naked human body shouldn't really be sexualized so mm-hmm. I'm in but like in between boats if that makes sense right right and like representing a historical figure like that could be seen really as disrespectful but like it, it takes a lot of like conscious thinking of it which is maybe what the artist was trying to do to counter that I don't know what would how did you feel about it so initially so the first article I read and this is actually the 
like the best one I think I've mm. I've read is um, titled "A Naked Statue for a Feminist Hero," and it's part of the Critics Notebook uh, Art and Design section of the New York Times. And it was written by Eleanor Nairn, who is yeah. actually a very like well known art critic and writer. And so at first I went, so the, the article starts with an image of the yeah. statue. And I was very kind of like, what the, what the fuck? Like, yeah. Just like, what is this more than anything? So in the beginning of her article, she poses questions of like, exactly what you were saying. Like, naked woman, why is this here? You know, um, she was quoting uh, tweets on Twitter where it was like, show me a man's statue where they're naked. And then she quite right, uh, Eleanor Nairn quite rightly goes like, well, you know, classic history men were naked and had yeah. their members shown. And she actually also talks about the statue in Oxford, England of Percy Bysshe Shelley. I haven't seen that. Actually. Oh, you should Google it. It is, I mean, that is one where the member is very much on display and very- exaggerated. No, actually, it's not exaggerated, and that's quite interesting. I, you know, was reading the issues with this, and also that this woman coming out of the am- amorphous structure is like a very idealized feminine physique. Yeah. yeah. And I was just kind of thinking, you know, because I did Google immediately the Shelley statue of why is it not an issue when men are presented as naked and women? And of course, this is very patriarchal. It's very much yeah. in the weird like hypocrisy and um, contradictions of the female body, you know, yeah. where it's like hypersexualized, but don't show too much. But if yeah, you don't show enough, then you're types of immodest, modest. And, yeah. Uh, or idealized or sexualized or the object of desire. But then if it's too much, then it's hypersexualized. If it's not enough, it's not sexualized enough. Right, you're uh, prudish. You're, yeah, it's just weird. It's just you know, I kind of started to go, okay, so like, what is actually happening here? And so Eleanor Nairn's article really pivots on what the statue base says, yeah. and the statue base reads for Mary Wollstonecraft, 1759 to 1797. I'll just briefly quote. What she says, "Is the preposition here is everything? Mm. This is not a likeness of." but a tribute to Wollstonecraft, yeah. who has been a hero of the feminist movement since her name was first stitched onto British suffrage banners in the late 19th century. Yeah. And so then the question is, like, what, what does this dedication to Wollstonecraft do? You know, and monuments are traditionally male, have been traditionally male. And monumentalization as a whole is a really complex field and phenomena especially in recent memory with, you know, Stalin and Lenin and the communist countries and the toppling and falling of the communist regime in 89 and what's known as uh, Leninopad, which is the fall of the Lenin statues and all of that, uh, which is really interesting. So, you know, I was thinking about this in reading and it's, I, like you, Elo, am quite... I'm a bit torn. Torn. Yeah. Also because reading some people criticizing that because it's a female gendered sexual gendered body that it is excluding transgenders yeah body identification so it's kind of can be seen as a turf statue which i and 
you know, didn't think of initially. Yeah, and I do find and, that yeah. problematic. Yes. I also, so I, after reading the Naren article, went to Twitter and was like, well, what are other people saying? You know, I'm curious and also looking for other articles. And I came across a post that showed the two final contestants for this statue. So one is the one that was se- selected. And the other was a very traditional Mm. statue that was in like a semi-arc and then it had Wallstonecraft standing and she was you know dressed in that style of her time and the statue was meant more as like a interactive piece so like the semi-arc was a bench that people could sit on and take pictures with Mary Wallstonecraft and um the I don't recall exactly what the board members, you know, the selection community said, but something about how they felt that this was a bit dry or something like that. So I like, I agree that they wanted to try to do something radical and different for a radical and different person and life changer. But at the same time, I kind of wish they would have chosen the other one. Yeah. Though. I think, well, it's quite difficult, right? Because obviously they were trying to do something innovative. But then obviously sometimes if that falls flat or that becomes problematic, then you've done more damage than good, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. It's just, it's interesting to kind of Yeah, it'd be interesting to have someone else talk about this as well. So if you guys have opinions on this, please share with us. Um, I feel, I, to be honest, I feel very conflicted. I think you're right, the... the the other choice may have been better also because it would have been it would have engaged more young people with it purposefully or not you know and that may have had actually more of an impact in remembering this woman right and like just to kind of bring two other questions that Nairn postulates that I think are part of this conversation that we would like to maybe hear your comments on because I think that they also touch upon our conflict are Might the statue's unusual form be understood as a refusal to participate in monument making? And Mm. isn't this artwork about Wollstonecraft's life and philosophy rather than her image? I almost find in a way that because the statue is so jarring and opposite of what you would expect, that it does kind of challenge you to go, well, what is this artist doing and why is this appear this way? So yeah, it's just, it's complex and not easy. I also do feel that, you know, this isn't a public space. It's in a park. That this is maybe a bit abstract for the common pedestrian walking through. You know, it would be nice to just have a more traditional statue, especially because this is the first one. You know, like there's a time and a place for high art. Yeah. And this artist has been known to make art that has inspired conflict and criticism in her yeah. other works. So it was also a political or deliberate choice. Yeah, to kind of be portrayed in a certain way or to instigate a certain type of question. I mean, it's, it's quite a hard... It, it, I find it really interesting because obviously, like, a lot of the art that we look at usually is art that you'd see in a museum and often the artists are dead. And so, the, 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 you know, you can criticize it, take it back mm-hmm. and reconstruct it, deconstruct it. You can do whatever you want. It can be forgotten, can be brought back to light and all that. But with a contemporary artist, they have quite a lot of, like, living problems, right? Like, right. if you're seen as conflictual at some point of your, in your career, you might be seen as conflictual throughout. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, and like in the article, Miss Hambling is described as a chain smoking artist who seems to enjoy a public fight. So she has this kind of persona. Yeah. As a renegade, if you will. And then, so she's also created two other public sculpture memorials. One to the composer Benjamin Britten in Aldebra, England, and another mm. to the playwright Oscar Wilde in London. Both oh. works stirred up debates and both were even defaced. Just an interesting all around. I, yeah. Despite my conflict, I do find it unfortunate that there is the naked female body, despite what I was saying earlier, you know, in antiquity, bodies being naked and everything. I do it's find just not that the same now. Like it's just yeah, it's not. It's it's it doesn't bear the same message. And it'd be mm-hmm. nice if it did, but unfortunately, it might fall short. You know. Yeah, well, especially because if the woman in the statue is supposed to be like an every woman. Yeah, it's just not very fair. Yeah, well, and like people on Twitter are saying. I wish I had her abs and stuff. Yeah. I mean, she's very fit. So yeah, yeah. the every womaniness is it's, not it's kind of yeah. It's exclusionary. It's the idealized, it's, and so I find issue with that. Yeah, and also, I mean, you know, in a period where people are starting to identify, where people identify as non-binary, mm-hmm. or it kind of goes against, it reinforces a status quo that is, Mm -hmm. as you were saying, quite exclusive. It doesn't help. It doesn't convey the message that she probably wanted to convey, you know? Yeah. And it would have been interesting had the statue not have had the every woman on top if it was just this amorphous blob or something. You know, it would have been, well, what is this doing and what is this saying? Or, you know, I feel like it's in between being hyper abstract and then, you know, it has this semi-realistic element. And I don't think it successfully navigates the space between the two. Like Louise Bourgeois in Sweden, this is a small town that had a witchcraft phenomena in the 1700s, 1600s. Um, recently the subject of a historical fiction book called The Mercies, which is phenomenal. I recommend this book to everyone. Louise Bourgeois did a um, statue there that is a memorial to these women who were executed. And it is amazing because it captures the emotion and the homage to everything without having a face. It's it's an iron chair that's like surrounded by flames. I really want to go see this someday because it is truly beautiful. And it's on this tiny little island in Vardo, Norway is where this is. And I think that that's successful because Mm. of how minimalist it is. Right. So anyways, I'm digressing. One brief note on this whole controversy before we pivot. So I tweeted on Twitter, I like retweeted Elaine Showalter, the feminist Mm. author and icon, like she's a big name. So I retweeted it, you know, and added my own two cents. Mm. And Elaine Showalter liked it. No way. Well done you. And maybe it's just because I, you know, quoted her name in it, but don't care. I felt very yes. like affirmed in my it's life. Um, what I wrote just briefly was, I agree <laughs> with the criticism that hashtag Mary Wollstonecraft statue nudity is patriarchal, absurd, etc. However, like Elaine Showalter, I do find female scholar Eleanor Nairn's article a fine piece. Although I do still wish that a better non-nude statue had been selected. So rereading that, I do agree with my previous sentiment. Well, you I know, feel that, like that is that is fair enough. So 
Yeah, follow me on, on Twitter. <laughs> that was a self-promotion <laughs> under my name. But the reason why we started with this, the idea of memorialization. Yeah. So for those of you who haven't watched Coco, it's quite a sweet Disney film, which we'll start talking about in a second. But um, what they do is, you know, they talk of, it's based on the Dia de los Muertos and memorializing the dead and remembering them and representing them and including them in their daily life, which obviously mm-hmm. has like quite a lot of different ways in which that is represented within the film. But also there's a difference or a staggering difference, I find, with how we would think about this. And that's in itself quite interesting. And then you compare it with the idea of memory of the statue mm-hmm. and uh, what we've just talked about. And that's how we've created this link. Because we wanted to talk about both things, but we wanted to do it in a different kind of light. Yes, yes. Another kind of connection to this idea of memory and feminism that we can also bring in as a hinge point is the fact that Frida Kahlo is a character that's in Coco. Yeah. And which was, you know, cool. And also just like a great way to nod. I think Coco does a phenomenal job of nodding and embracing and depicting, you know, Central and South American culture, Mexican heritage. And so when Ella and I were, you know, talking in preparation of recording and talking about the Wallstone craft statue, I thought, well, because as we said in the beginning, this is the first public statue to Wallstone craft, which is mind boggling. And I was like, well, does Frida Kahlo have a statue? Yeah. And she does. So the one that you sent me, Ella, it does have her with her husband, Diego Rivera. Does she have her own? I don't know. That's the question yeah. because there are issues with that as well because yeah, she's a lot of her that is own person. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and but nonetheless, there is like a physical statue. Yeah, that depicts her in some form. Yeah, so that white. And for those of like, you who uh, would perhaps want to go, if you go ever go to Mexico and would like to see the statue, mm-hmm. it's in the Centro Cultural. Reyes Heroles in Coyacan in Mexico and it's probably worth visiting because it probably so you see Frida Kahlo sat on a bench and to her looks to me like to her right but it might be to her left depending on perspective um, (laughs) you see a standing Diego Rivera kind of like overtaking her so she's definitely the smaller of the two figures right I mean Rivera was also like a very large man in both yeah life and art. Yes. So as Ella was saying, Coco is about remembrance and different forms of remembering and memory and, you know, the, the, the different ways that we do that. So Dia de Muertos is, you know, you have the ofrendas and you go to the cemetery and you light the candles and you lay the flowers down so that the, the dead can return, which I didn't know that that... I didn't know that either. Um, ...was part of the tradition. And I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, it's really sweet. You know, in the film, we also see, so in the town square, which they call like Mariachi Square, I think, mm. or Mariachi Plaza. Plaza, yeah. You know, has the statue of... Ernesto, and it has like seized the moment, just how that gets turned on its head by the end of the film and how problematic that is. And just thinking about what we memorialize and why. And like America is having a huge debate over this in regards to Confederacy monuments. Yeah. And what is 
allowed to be remembered and not allowed, but what should be publicly remembered and not. And I think I've mentioned this before on another episode, but Hungary, I think, kind of has a great solution to this where they have the memorial park where they took statues from the socialist era that were toppled or removed from public spaces, you know, like town squares and put into a park that's its own entity. And you can walk through the park and see different statues. So they're taking out of their original context, but they're not destroyed and completely forgotten. And I think that's a great way to try to negotiate this. It's true. Now. And it's also very interesting because I think that this is a conversation. So obviously, not to give too much away, but the premise of the film was kind of like the story, the history that you remember and the danger of forgetting Mm -hmm. some histories. And I think it's very interesting that that message is conveyed to a young public because Mm -hmm. it is very, you know, apt for this moment in time when history is kind of being recontested and obviously throughout history this has happened a lot like it's not new that something that was thought to be true is proven wrong or what we thought was important to remember actually is proven to be the passé you know but it's interesting that that is a general message that is brought into a cartoon yeah no this film I was very surprised with how mature the content was especially for you know like so pixar and disney are known for being i mean they're children's films that doesn't mean you watch finding nemo now you watch any of the toy stories now there's definitely adult content in them and things that you know you relate to as you grow up especially toy story 3 at the end of that film when andy goes to college and i remember i saw that and i think i was a sophomore or junior in high school so it was like right at that moment in life And I mean, it wrecked me because that was how I felt. But, you know, Coco also has murder in it. Yeah. So, you know, the scene initially when they show in there, though, and they're talking about how he died and the bell falls on him during the performance. And I shouted out, what? Because that was actually showing the death in Disney. And also, like, you're not expecting it. No. It's comedic. It's funny, but also kind of insane, you know, kind of. That's tragic, man. Yeah. I mean, he was a horrible person, but no, you wouldn't wow. die like that. Um, and then also the so this has spoilers. Just know that we talk about spoilers. So, Ella, you were trying not to give it away, but I have to. Okay. <laughs> but the poisoning and the murder through poisoning. Yeah, brutal. And like they show the death, they show the poisoning. They Boy, deliberately it. say that that's what happened. It wasn't just kind of like. Yeah, but to be fair though, those characters you don't you're not supposed to have like too much of an emotional attachment to. Um, if you compare them to Coco, who by the way dies, you don't that's alluded to, but that's not shown. Well, and why we say that Coco dies, so for those of you the little boy's name's not Coco, it's Miguel. No. Yeah, sorry. Um, Coco is his great grandma. Yeah. And the reason why the movie is called Coco is because it's about the remembrance and the story that if you're no one in your family remembers you and you don't have a picture on the ofrenda, then you slowly fade away. And so there's this climax where, I mean, Coco, they never say it, but that she most likely has dementia. I mean, she's quite old. And so she's forgetting her father who was deliberately forgotten by the family. 
Mm. And so we meet her father and he starts to fade away slowly because she's forgetting him. He's the character uh, Hector in the film who is like this rat. He's at first is seen kind of as like a vagabond, you know, no good person. But the reason why he's so tattered is because he's being forgotten and he's been exiled by the family. He was poisoned because he wanted to go home. He didn't want to pursue the musical career. So that's why the film's called Coco, because it's about her remembering as well as him remembering her. I mean, it's quite beautiful and sad and like parental love. Um, And there's, so in this, there's the song that is kind of like the hinge point song, Remember Me, right? You know, the lyrics are like, remember me, though I have to say goodbye. Remember me, don't let it make you cry. Forever if I'm far away, I hold you in my heart. I sing a secret song to you each night we are apart. Remember me, though I have to travel far. Remember me each time you hear a sad guitar. Know that I'm with you. The only way that I can be until you're in my arms again. Remember me. So it's so sweet and sad and such kind of like a lament, which made me think of Dido's lament in Dido and Aeneas, the opera and the song, the aria, Remember Me.
Dido's lament is also about her like suicide and wanting to be remembered by Henry Purcell. The reason why I really like know this is because of my operatic text setting class I took at Cal, which Uh, during the time was my least favorite course. And I think it's the one that I talk about the most. It was one of the most like life-changing classes I've ever taken. I know that you said that you've kind of had a similar thing with your uh, Italian class Dante. It's funny how things get under your skin. The lyrics, if you couldn't tell from the clip, because you mean she's, you know, singing operatically, is when I am laid, am laid in earth, may my wrongs create no trouble, no trouble in, in thy breast. When I am laid and laid in earth, may my wrongs create no trouble, no trouble in, in thy breast. Remember me, remember me, but ah, forget my fate. Remember me, but ah, forget my fate. Remember me, remember me, but ah, forget my fate. So it sounds much more beautiful when it's sung, but this idea of remembering me. Yeah. And I think that the forget my fate kind of links to Hector and the fact that he was poisoned and how sad that is and how he was forgotten for so long. And also how that was never mentioned. Right. And how the family thought that he had abandoned them when he was trying to do what he thought was best for them and fulfill his passion. And then he tried to return home. Mm. And, you know, the villain does something horrible and then he is forgotten for a while. So just this kind of idea of lamenting remembrance, if that makes sense. And just remember me. You know, it has the mem mem me in it. It has the consonants and the alliteration. And it's just, I felt very powerful. It's true. It was, is, is this the only medieval link that you found? Or? This isn't medieval. Oh. So I guess that's our pivot into medieval links. Yeah. So Purcell was, you know, uh, 1600s, 1700s. Yeah. First medieval link, since we just talked about uh, Dante. The dog's name is Dante. Yeah, I know. I and thought it was quite funny how he was traveling amongst the dead. Well, he was an alebrie. Mm. He was one of the spirit guardians. Yeah. His name, Dante, because, you know, you think of the divine comedy and going through, you know, hell, purgatory, and heaven, but these liminal spaces these afterlives and Dante is a guide that's what he's doing so there's like yeah. a deliberate reason why his name is Dante yeah well it's also interesting as well because obviously like he doesn't travel through heaven hell purgatory in heaven by himself he travels with Virgil mm-hmm. and then with Beatrice but the fact that he is represented in on his own it kind of feels like it's a culmination of what he's gone through and therefore mm-hmm. he's now the expert, you know, and also the fact that, you know, he's long dead, so. Right. I, th- I have personally found, at least in my experience, you know, with like Dante and the Divine Comedy, is that the fact that he had, you know, Virgil as the guide and Beatrice, they're, I feel like they're kind of forgotten as guides and that Dante becomes the archetype of this journey, of this Trek and I mean Disney works and allegories. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 yeah. So that that's really interesting because I feel like obviously for any person who studied it, that's just mm-hmm. like kind of incorrect. But it's interesting right. just how the afterlife of the text comes to being, you know, and the modernization of it. Mm-hmm. Well, it definitely just goes in regard to our theme this week of remembrance yeah, and yeah. what you remember, what you what you admit, yeah. Exactly. So I think that that was just kind of like an interesting... No, it definitely is. And something to just be aware of. Like, you know, yeah, Dante is always seen as the kind of spokesman of the text. Yeah. And yeah, these other characters are kind of like subsumed by him. 
rather than given their own, you know, voice or autonomy. So that was like the first one, you know, kind of a obvious, I think, or more obvious, you know, Dante, your brain immediately, I think, usually goes to... Yeah, unfortunately it does. I'm sorry. (laughs) Purgatory more than anything else, I think, for people. Um, Or not purgatory, I apologize. um, Hell. Hell. And of course, the the afterlife city is, it feels kind of like a, an all three put together because I could, you could argue that Hector is in a bit of a purgatory where he's being forgotten, but he's not completely forgotten. He's an in-between, you know, so there's that. And then do you have a guess on what the second one is by chance? It's quite a subtle. Quite subtle. Could it be the use of music? Kind of like the, the dance of the death? No, yeah. not Dance Macabre. No. You're close with music. It's the name of the town they live in is Santa Cecilia. Oh, oh sorry, that's the city. Which is, you know, the, um, the Latinized version of St. Cecilia, who was a Roman martyr, 4th century. She's the patron saint of music in the Catholic Church. Oh, so, so cute. And another kind of exciting thing with her is that her feast day is November 22nd. So it's coming up next week. Oh, well, so, maybe, there'll be definitely a little post about her then. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and so briefly her, her story, because it goes in line with my research, I've actually read about her and studied her a bit because since she is a female martyr and she is one of the more popular martyred saints, she is also used allegorically a lot. So St. Cecilia, she was born in the city of Rome and she came from a very rich family and was given in marriage to a youth named Valerian, also sometimes spelt Valerian. She wore a sackcloth next to her skin, fasted and evoked the saints, angels, and virgins, beseeching them to guard her virginity. And the sackcloth is very similar to the hair shirts that medieval religious people wore. It's like a sense of discomfort. You know, it's kind of like when you put on a wool coat or a wool jumper on your bare skin and it's kind of itchy, you know, makes your skin kind of tingle. During her wedding ceremony to Valerian, who was chosen by her family to marry, so this is very much in the kind of, a lot of the virgin martyr stories, particularly the female virgin martyrs, have the same thing. Same with St. Margaret, who is my embrace patron saint, where women are very pious, and then their family are like, no, you have to marry this man who is not of the faith. And then they go through some sort of trial and conflict and then are killed. (laughs) <laughs> which is horrible. But um, during her wedding ceremony, Cecilia sat apart from the others and sang in her heart to God. And before the consummation of her nuptials, she told her husband that she had taken a vow of virginity and that she had an angel protecting her. So Valerian asks to see this angel's proof that she's being protected by God. And Cecilia tells him that he would have the eyes to see once he traveled to the third milestone and the Via Appia, or Appian Way, and was baptized by Pope Urbanus. So Valerian, being a gentleman, does this. He goes and gets baptized. He comes back, and he does see an angel by Cecilia. So he respects her vow of virginity, of chastity. Following his baptism, Valerian returns to his wife, and the angel then crowns Cecilia with a chaplet of rose and lily. And Valerian's brother, uh, Tibertius, when he hears of the angel and his brother's baptism, also becomes baptized. And together, the two brothers dedicate their lives to burying saints who are murdered each day by the prefect of the city, Tertius Almachius. 
The brothers were eventually arrested and brought before the prefect and were executed as they refused to sacrifice to the pagan gods. As her husband and brother-in-law were buried, St. Cecilia spent her time preaching and in her lifetime was able to convert over 400 people, most of whom were baptized by Pope Urban. She was later arrested and condemned to be suffocated in the baths and was shut in for one night and one day as fires were heaped up and stoked to a terrifying heat. But Cecilia didn't sweat due to divine intervention. Which, quick side note, when I was reading about Commodus, he uh, had his sister Lucilla killed by being placed in a Sicilian bowl, which if you've never heard of is a metal, uh, like, bowl structure that they're, like, wedged into and then placed over a fire so that the iron heats up and then they, like, burn slash suffocate to death. So that's easy to speak, I guess, also. Oh, my God. So, you know, Cecilia is alive and fine. So when Amachius, the prefect, hears this, he sends an executioner to cut off her head in the baths, which if you recall, I think this was the episode where I was talking about Buffy and martyred saints. Beheading virgins was like the go-to. Almost all the virgin martyrs of like the early Roman period were beheaded. It's like the only way you could guarantee they die because of divine intervention and protection. So the executioner strikes her neck three times, but is unable to decapitate her. So he leaves her bleeding, and she leaves, lives for three more days. Crowds come to her and collected her blood while she preached to them and prayed. On the third day, she died and was buried by Pope Urban and his deacons. Due to her wedding day and singing in her heart, she is regarded as the patroness of music. She is usually represented in art with an organ or organ pipes in her hand. And then another fun fact is officials exhumed her body in 1599 and found her to be incorrupt the first of all incorrupt saints. She appeared to be sleeping, draped in a silk veil, and wore a gold-embroidered dress. Officials only looked through the veil in an act of holy reverence and made no further examinations. They also reported a, quote, mysterious and delightful flower-like odor, which proceeded from the coffin. She was then transferred to Cecilia's titular church in Trastevere and placed under the high altar. Then in 1599, Cardinal Paolo Emilio Sfondrati, nephew of Pope Gregory XIV, we built the Church of St. Cecilia. What a story. So, yes, yeah, sorry. That didn't have a lot of music in it, but I think it's just a really important. interesting story and yeah, important. Yeah. But, yes, she's the patron saint of music. So yeah. that's the town, Santa Cecilia, in yeah, Coco. Cool. Disney and Pixar are very smart when they do those sorts of things. Like yeah. That's deliberate. It, what, I, that's not a coincidence. No, 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 no. No, I really, I thought it was a very good film. I would encourage people to watch it. And maybe yeah. there's more than what definitely like we did our medieval reading of it, but um, I'm sure there's different types of readings that you can do of it as well. Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, cultural wise, there's so much that you could do culturally, lots of small suggestions to that are actually like generic and sincere cultural gestures by the yeah. behalf of Disney. When Coco or other characters are playing the guitar, they're actually fingering the correct chords. Um, another fun fact. So the dog Dante, yeah. the type of dog he is is a holo, so X O L O, which is a type of kind of like furless, not mangy, but like rough skinned dog that's native mm-hmm. to Mexico that were becoming endangered. And the reason why they have a resurgence is because Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera, seeing that they're important to the culture, like started breeding them and protecting them. So Aww. in the film, uh, when we first meet Frida Kahlo, 
it's yeah. twofold when she sees Dante and says like, oh, you're more than you seem. She's like acknowledging their culture, but also she's seeing that he's actually a, an Albaria, a spirit guide, which is quite it's so sweet. It's weird. like, I really, I thought it was really good. I, I mean, I know this is quite soppy and <laughs> not particularly constructive, but I would urge everyone to watch it even for, you know, the hardest of souls. I think it's quite a sweet film. Yeah, I mean, it it really is beautiful. And the animation is astounding it's great, in it. Yeah. It's and... perhaps too perfect, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, one final fun fact with the Frida Kahlo thing and yeah. just saying this is all deliberate. So in the film, when she's talking about the papaya and the cactus and the suckling of the cactus and they're all her, they're all her face. So, and this is for like the, the big show at the end of Dia de Muertos. Um, the Frida's crawling out of the papaya is an allusion to two of her paintings. Still life round, features mm. a papaya in the center, while in Last Supper, multiple self-portraits of Frida are positioned around the table. Mm. So, a little art history oh, thing going on there. Yeah. <laughs> I guess any other like last thoughts, Elo, on Coco, aside from it being, you know, good? Um, I thought it was very interesting how in the City of the Dead, the city was built in height rather than horizontally. And it kind of gave me this impression of like the afterlife as being an ascent rather than it being, you know, the way in which we perceive life in general. Oh, yeah, I like that. Also, it was meant to be a visual allusion to the Mexican city of Guanajuato, which has colorful houses placed on the hillside in such a way that they look almost stacked. So it's twofold. You can look at that allegorically, as you're saying, Elo, as well as like literally. And if you want to look at it as a visual representation of this city, which I think is quite nice and shows the rich tapestry that you can do with the film. Yeah, it's true. But I like the idea of ascending. It kind of looked like clouds at points too, you know, like so nice. Any other? Um, no, I think that was it really for me. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to say, because we talked about the flower and I thought, oh no, I don't remember the name of the flower. It's an Aztec marigold known also as the Mexican marigold or the, okay, apologize. This is one of the hard words, the Sempasuquil. Watch the film. It's great. If you've watched it already and, have and you've listened to this. And then have thoughts. Yeah, share them with us. Yeah. It was really fun to kind of challenge and see if there were medieval connections. Yeah, it's true. Because we were just kind of selfish and just wanted to watch the movie after doing research on Dia de Muertos for our past few podcasts. And it kind of came together with the Wallstonecraft statue and Frida Kahlo and then the little medieval elements in it. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed it. It was very complete. (laughs) Yes, definitely. It just shows you can almost make anything medieval. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if we try hard enough. Yes. Which I tried to start a hashtag. Hashtag make it medieval. So use that. Speaking of which, Elo, why don't you... You guys can find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or audible or amazon podcast is that thing yes it is you can also find us on youtube just by typing modern medieval podcast you can find us on social media on facebook we've got both a page and a group just by typing modern medieval podcast you can find us on instagram typing podcast.modern.medieval that's our handle you can find us on gmail by 
by emailing us at modern.medieval.podcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on Twitter. Twitter yeah. is, <laughs> sorry, I'm so used to you just handing it over to me for yeah, Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, was going to add that obviously that is Megan's sphere. I don't engage with Twitter. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at medieval underscore modern. And one last thing that I think just linking to past episodes, just briefly, I was thinking of this, is um, another patron saint of music is Hildegard von Bingen, who we talked about in our episode in regard to um, the bard core. So just kind of showing how it is all connected. And um, yeah, please send us comments, questions, thoughts, suggestions, you know, images, etc. Things to read, to look at, to consider. We, you know, enjoy doing this and want to hear back from you yeah. a bit more. Also, we're getting super close to the 1,000 listen mark. How many are we? We are currently at 969 listens. That's really close. <laughs> we're like a little podcast that could. Small network of people listening. We appreciate it. Yeah, definitely do. It, we just have fun doing this. Yeah. But hopefully you learn something and enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. So until next time, I'm Megan. And I'm Ella, and this is Modern Medieval, the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>